uh, this week, we're going to be continuing on, or rather wrapping up our series, Wonder. Uh, we've been looking at throughout this Christmas season the wonder of God, His design, His creation, the magnificence of the way that He's brought things together. Uh, last week, we focused on the need uh, we have for Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, uh, and then the wonder of God's rescue plan through Christ coming, uh, why we actually celebrate Christmas, uh, that He came in love to redeem rebels, uh, and bring us to himself. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the wonder of the next step of God's plan, uh, but kind of to preface that, we have another one of our videos this morning. Well, fairly often scientists discover things that are very confusing to them. doesn't make sense given their worldview, but when you know scripture, it makes perfect sense. Let's take a look at a few examples. One has to do with the ocean and the water in the oceans. The standard story is that there was a big bang and the earth formed 4.6 billion years ago and then cooled down and then over hundreds of millions of years, comets and asteroids hit the earth, bringing ice, melting, building up the oceans. Well, the Bible is in stark contrast to that. And what has surprised many secular scientists is that they actually have evidence that water has been around on the earth from the very beginning, from its inception. Well, that's what the Bible says. God created the earth covered with water on day one. So it's a surprise to secular scientists, but it makes sense to Christians. Secondly, the amount of water in the oceans. Skeptics say, oh, you, there's not enough water on the earth to, to make this global flood. If you smooth out the earth, there's enough water just in the oceans to cover it 1.7 miles deep. That's just in the oceans. And now what they've discovered is there's three times that much water in the layers of the earth. And the Bible says the great fountains of the deep erupted to start the flood. So there's plenty of water on this planet for a worldwide flood. It's not a surprise to a Christian and a creationist. Another example is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's a silly story. No one believes that, right? No one believes we all came from one man and one woman. Well, actually, the vast majority of secular scientists believe that because they have discovered genetically because of Y chromosomes in males and mitochondrial DNA in females that we have all truly come from one female and one male. Now they say, oh, but that was long before the Bible time. Then they did more research and now it seems like, yeah, it actually is more within a biblical time frame. And not only that, they think that in their not too distant past, almost everyone on the planet was wiped out and just a small group survived to repopulate the earth. Why does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, the whole flood story. Why do secular scientists believe that? Well, when you look at the genetics of people all over the planet, it's very narrowly spread, but it should be very wide. If we've been evolving from an ape-like creature for six million years, it should have become very wide in diversity by now, but it's not. So they say, okay, what happened is it got wide and almost everyone was wiped out and just a small group survived to start repopulating the earth and it hasn't been that long ago so it hasn't diversified much yet. That's exactly what the flood account teaches us. Worldwide flood about four and a half thousand years ago repopulating the earth. Then they started studying the genetics of animals and they found about the same thing. It seems like all the animals around today had a restart the same time humanity did. Fits in perfectly with the biblical creation account. And then lastly dinosaur bones. Everyone's fascinated by dinosaurs. We have been discovering many things that are shocking to secular scientists. Most dinosaur bones are still fresh. 
If they were 65 million years old, they should have fossilized a long time ago. We find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. Carbon-14 would only last a few tens of thousands of years, but if they're 65 million years old, there shouldn't be any left. It's still in the dinosaur bones. Then we found soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones. There is no way those materials would last for millions of years without decaying. And more recently, now we have DNA fragments from dinosaur bones. The DNA is even more fragile than red blood cells. It can't be there, but it is. And it matches up perfectly with a worldwide flood burying these creatures about four and a half thousand years ago. The more we look at science, the more we find evidence for the authority of God's word. And we're just scratching the surface talking about the wonders of God. I think it's just amazing when we stop to contemplate the various things around us uh, that God has created uh, and that we try to explain at times, but, but just seem marvelous. Uh, uh, magnetism. Like, I remember being a kid and not really knowing how magnets work. Uh, and my dad would put, like, this steel ball on top of a table. Uh, and I didn't realize it, but he had a magnet underneath the table. And so he's making the ball go all over the place on the table. I'm like, how, how is this even happening? You know, and we start to recognize how magnetism happens a little bit, uh, gravity, electricity, uh, the water cycle, uh, and the way that we get our water, and then it goes back, and then it's evaporated into clouds, it condenses, falls down as rain, goes to streams and rivers, and again and again and again, all in God's uh, thing. Um, even ourselves, in the way that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, we've got two feet, two hands, uh, and we can ride bicycles, right? <laughs> you know, you ever really consider that? Like, like as a kid, you're like seeing a bicycle, I want to do that. Uh, and, you know, and so your parents really kind of like help you to learn how to ride a bicycle. But, but if you've ever thought, like you're sitting there and, and you are sitting on top of the seat on a bicycle and you've got these two tires and the only thing touching the ground is, is a patch of rubber, maybe that big, in two different spots. And, and yet you're able to go, if you pedal fast, maybe 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour. And then you see some of these videos where people are doing tricks with them and, and, and jumping from place to place, you know, seven feet in the air. And it's absolutely uh, amazing the way that God has designed us and this wonder and awe in what he's done. And then at times we try to study it and explain it and there's still things that are just mystifying to us. And it speaks to the amazement in his design, his wonder and his creativity. But what does this all have to do uh, with God's next step uh, after the coming of Jesus Christ and how everything comes together in a perfect design? We're going to get to that uh, by going into John chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 7. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, uh, otherwise we'll have them on the screen. Uh, we'll be in John, Ephesians, and Colossians this morning, uh, kind of looking at this next step. But before we read, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, grateful for the gift of your Son, who willingly and joyfully came down to this earth uh, as a helpless baby, uh, and with a joy set before him, even endured the cross for us, to redeem us by his blood. 
to bring us here this morning to worship with one another, to go through this life encouraging each other, looking to Christ, uh, the beauty of your design in salvation, the beauty of your design in this world, and the beauty of your design for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would press that into our hearts to the point that we would not live for the things that this world simply offers for the here and now, but we would live for your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is John chapter 16. Uh, this is the night that he was going to be portrayed. This is where they're having dinner, and he's kind of teaching them as they're uh, doing this. Communion's about to be uh, instigated at this point uh, after this dinner. Uh, but here he's kind of teaching and instructing them. Uh, and in verse 7, he says, uh, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go, the counselor will not come to you. Uh, and so again, this is part of God's plan. We were talking about how it was designed for a very specific time, a very specific uh, purpose in Jesus Christ's coming. We celebrate that at Christmas. Uh, but then also here, Christ is telling his disciples, here's the ongoing part of God's plan. It's better that I leave, because if I don't leave, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Now I find this passage uh, absolutely uh, astonishing. I, I can't imagine what the disciples were thinking at this point when Jesus is saying, it's better for me to leave. I just consider all the things that they witnessed Jesus do. Spitting into the dirt, making some mud, rubbing it in a guy's eyes, and he's able to see. Walking on water. Resurrections from the dead. The fishes and the loaves. The provision and the way that he would just teach them. And here there's, he, Jesus is saying, it's better for you that, that I leave. It's better for you that, that I go. I, sometimes I wonder, like, what would it be like if, if Jesus was, like, walking the earth today? Like, what would be the impact of, of him still walking around in the Middle East? Maybe hopping on a ship and coming to America. You know, we can sit there and, and we can imagine what that might be like. And, and we look at the Scripture and we can see that, that some people who encountered Christ were transformed and they were never the same after that. And they were willing to leave everything in order to become his followers. And other people rejected him. But what Jesus is saying is that even for us here in the year 2020, about to be 2021, that it was better for him to leave. It's absolutely astonishing to me. It was better for him to leave so that the counselor would come so that the Holy Spirit would come. 
Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1 uh, to wait in the area uh, until they were clothed with power on high. And at Pentecost 33 CE, the, the Holy Spirit fell uh, and dwelt them and then empowered them to do the work of the ministry. To go out to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And it was the beginning of the church. What Jesus was saying is it's better for him to leave so that the church can begin being powered by the Holy Spirit and spread out to the ends of the world. For that body of Christ in the church, the gathering of believers, to, to be able to come together, minister one another, to reflect the love of Christ, and, and then to share it with people around them. And, and to share it in a sense of awe and wonder and love and joy. You know, sometimes I, I think we approach sharing our faith with others uh, almost as salesmen. We sit there and wonder, like, what am I going to tell somebody? How, how can I lead somebody to the Lord? How, how can I share my faith? And so we come up with a three-point plan, a four-point plan, and, and those can be helpful, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but if we're just sitting there saying, like, what's this little thing that I can do in order to sell Jesus, in a sense. Like, like, let me show you these things that should convince you why you should believe in Jesus. You imagine if we did that with a sunset? Like, like, here's a sunset on the horizon. We look out our window, and we're like, that's amazing. The, the pinks. I, what I really love is when, you know, it's kind of got that orange, and then the blue in the sky is so much more intense, and then the clouds kind of like pop orange. Like, like just this amazing sunset. Uh, and if I would sit there and put a sheet of paper and say, um, there's some orange and blue and pink. Hey, you should go look outside because there's blue, orange, and pink. Let me convince you through an argument to like, no, I would come and see this. I, I want to share with you what I've experienced. I, I'm in awe of the color of this sunset. And I just want to share with you what the sunset has meant to me. Like it's something that we enjoy. Think about the most favorite things that you have in your own life. The, the things that you love to share with others. Your favorite foods. Oh, this cookie is great. You, you got to try one of these. This bicycle. This is a great bicycle. Like I recommend it. It's this idea of sharing. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, uh, in one of his books, uh, made an argument that, that I really agree with, that, that our sense and fulfillment of joy is even greater when we share something. We want other people to share it with us instead of sitting there and hoarding it. What if you saw that sunset in the sky and you're like, this is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I really don't want to be crowded by the window in my house. And I, I know my daughter, my wife, would really like to see this, but no. Let me, let me just take it for myself. It's so much more joyful. It's so much more enjoyment of the sunset by, by looking to share it with other people. And I think at times when we look to point people towards Jesus, we, we try to do it as salesmen, just trying to convince them instead of just sharing what he's done for us. And saying, come and see, come and look. Even in Revelations, it talks about that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, but also by the word of our testimony and what He has done for us. 
And so we look to, to share this in a way of something that we absolutely enjoy and not something that we're trying to meet some quota in order to get our commission. We do it because we love Jesus and we want other people to love Jesus as well. And so we do that because that's what the Holy Spirit came to empower us to do in order to bring the church together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about God building the church together with individual members. And in as perfect as, or imperfect as we see the church being, it's still God's plan. It's one of the things that, that I think as you look and you see in social media and you hear in conversations, and, and I even heard some this last week just expressing this disappointment in the church. It isn't doing what it should be doing. And in some cases, that's true. In some peop- cases, people will, will look at the imperfection and, oh, this person offended me and so I don't go anymore because it's not reflecting Jesus. There's so many different reasons or excuses that people can look at the church and they say, this is messy. And and so therefore, I'm going to disengage. But we miss out on the idea of it being God's plan. And if we look at what the definition of the church is, it's not the organization. It's not the pastor and the staff. It's certainly not the building. But the church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It is the gathering of believers together to walk through this life pursuing Jesus Christ. Now, now what are believers? Human beings. Men and women who have been captured by the beauty of Jesus Christ and want to pursue him with everything that they have despite their weaknesses and despite their imperfections. And so, in reality, a church is made up of people who are imperfect and desperately need Jesus to work in their lives. Why would we expect the church not to be messy at times then? For the church not to be imperfect at times. Because we make mistakes as individuals, and if we come together, we're going to bump into each other at times. There's going to be offense at times. There are going to be times where we may disagree on how to do certain things. But that's the nature of it coming together. And we need to be careful not to minimize the position of the church. Because God in His wisdom chose the church. God, in His wisdom, said it's better for Jesus to not walk on this earth anymore so that the Holy Spirit can come and build the church. Ephesians 3, verse 10 puts it this way, that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Have you ever considered that truth? That is God's multifaceted wisdom. His ways are higher than His way, ours. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And, and there might be at times where we become discouraged or disillusioned or frustrated with the church. Whether it's Mercy Hill here in Rock County or, or in general. But it's God's purpose so that His wisdom 
may they be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. To angels. Angels are looking in awe and wonder at God's wisdom in choosing us as broken people, jars of clay, carrying the greatest treasure of the gospel. To the rebel angels and Satan, God's wisdom is being revealed as He redeems men and women, bringing them out of sin and death, bringing you out of sin and death, refining you by the Holy Spirit to be a jar of clay carrying the greatest treasure, the hope of this world. And yet we don't often live that way. We consider church to be something that we do something that we attend, something that's a a part of our life, maybe a weekly touchstone that gives us some encouragement to get through, instead of considering that we are called to be the church. If you're a blood-bought Christian, church is not something that you do. It's rather it's something that you should be in the way that you minister to one another. Being the church holds the answer to all the problems that we face in this world today. An idea of justice? Man has an imperfect sense of justice that can change from decade to decade. God's sense of justice is eternal, perfect, loving, merciful, and absolute. And we're called to hold and trust in that. God's morality and the way that we see our society decaying and pursuing its own wisdom and wanting its own choice to determine what is good and what is bad, again, changes from decade to decade. But God's Word does not change and God Himself does not change. We hold to the anchor that He has given to us. And there's so much more. Last night... Uh, there was a shooting at a bowling alley in Rockford, and three people died. The world strives to find reason and answers and how to fix it. And there's maybe some things that can be done to help in those situations. But, but what can the world do to eradicate the sin that inspired the murder in the first place? Absolutely nothing. What can the church do? There is a God who created all of us. And we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses. But there is a merciful forgiveness that was offered in blood by Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and transform you from this life of sin and death into pursuit of the Holy One. And in that, you are transformed. You are forgiven. And as we pursue that, we walk away from sin. We walk away from desires. And the truth is that whoever committed that act last night, God offers forgiveness to them as well. It is the answer of redemption that God can use all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes in Romans chapter 8. 
Anything that Satan tries to design or happen, God can use it and turn it to further his kingdom. The world has no parallel to that. There is nothing that our government can do to eradicate sin, but the truth is we hold to a God who is coming to throw sin and death into hell and throw away the keys. And we're called to be the church. That on the rock of the confession of Jesus Christ as the Savior, the gates of hell cannot prosper against. We have the answers to what we face. And so instead of seeking our own desires, trying to build our own little kingdoms and pursue what we think is best, we decide to follow and allow the Holy Spirit to build this church by, by us being willing participants instead of distant observers. It's a stepping in and saying, God, use me as you will in my life. Wherever your job may be, whatever your family situation might be, your friendships. Colossians 3 puts it this way, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. I I just want to pause on those four words right there. Actually, eight words. If you're here this morning, redeemed by the blood of Christ, your sins are forgiven, you are one of God's chosen ones, and you are holy and dearly loved. I think sometimes we need to let that sink in a little bit more. That we are holy and dearly loved. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. And again, this is in the aspect of I I am forgiving and set aside retribution. I am laying down my desire for vengeance. And I trust the Lord in this. Depending on the circumstances, this is going to look different. If somebody is rude to us, we can forgive them and, and we can move on. If, if somebody has hurt us, abused us, or caused great damage, we're still called to lay aside our sense of vengeance and trusting the Lord in that. But a relationship with that person might look completely different moving on. And actually, coming up in January, we're going to be looking at doing a series on forgiveness and repentance. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But in verse 14, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now in this passage, we see a number of different ways that we're instructed to be the church. 
not to be a distant observer, uh, to come and consume whatever a church is providing on a Sunday, but, but for us to actually enter into in a willing submission to the Holy Spirit working within us and participate. The first thing is a call to be unified in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Paul says, therefore, uh, I, the prison of the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, a, a calling to be a son or daughter of God. To be a chosen one, holy and dearly loved. To do it with humility and gentleness. The same thing that was written in Colossians. With patience, bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, now this bond of peace is our peace with God and ought to be our peace with one another because we're in the same family. Whether it's within this building or, or other churches in Janesville uh, or in this country, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Through this bond, the church should not be shaken by politics. Should not be shaken by a pandemic. Should not be shaken by race or culture or finances, personal preferences. All these things are to be set aside through the bond of the unity of peace in God because there is one calling and one body, one Lord, and Jesus is the pastor of the church. Do we live this way? Willing participants Bearing with one another in love, recognizing we're all imperfect, and sometimes we're going to rub each other the wrong way. And yet, what happens too often is we rub each other the wrong way, and somebody says, I'm done, I'm out. I'm going to go find something else. That's not being the church. That's consuming the church. It's consuming it as a commodity that we can take and pick and choose whether or not we like it. We go to a, a restaurant and we find hair in our food. I'm never going there again. It's not like that with the church. Because it was purchased by the blood of Christ. And it's God's perfect plan for us to be here in 2020. It was better for Jesus to leave so that we are here together in 2020. We see far too many things shaking the church that are simply rooted in this temporary world. And it reveals that those things are idols. If the church is shaken because of politics, then politic has become an idol to people. Something that they hold greater sway in their life than they hold the unity of the church through the spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to give up our identity in our pursuit of our identity in earthly things. And then we find in the second thing in this passage is to live in the peace of Christ. It's very hard to live in the peace of Christ if we're allowing ourselves to be shaken by so many things in this world, to have worries and cares and concerns about all these temporary things instead of simply being rooted in the peace of Christ and that we have been reconciled with the one who spoke all things into existence. 
and that He calls us His chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. If that truth would grip our hearts and be our reality, what would shake us in this world? Threat of death? Oh, Jesus has got me. Oh, my friendship is rocked because this person wears a mask and this one doesn't. It's folly. In the face of the relationship that Jesus died for. And it breaks my heart to see churches ripped apart by something so trivial. To see the idolatry of politics this last year and the vitriol between those who are bought by the blood of Christ. We're called to be above those things because of the unity of the bond of the spirit of peace. And if we can be anchored in the peace of Christ, it then allows us to do the third thing, to minister to one another. Because if we recognize that we're all imperfect, that I'm imperfect, you're imperfect, I I need Jesus desperately in my life, and you need Jesus desperately in your life, now we can see, like, through the unity of this peace in Christ, how can I help you? And I need you to help me. We do this through the Word. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let's encourage one another to anchor in the Word, to be equipped, to, to teach one another, to encourage one another. To do good works, especially as the day draws near. We do this through worship, like we did this morning and and we will do at the end of this message. In singing out and declaring the glory and beauty of our God. It's like saying to one another, come look at the sunset. Do you realize that, that when we're in worship, That you are not just standing here singing to the words on the screen for you. But your voice is shouting out the glory of God to those around you. That is what worship is. It's, It's not the team up here on the stage putting on a display for us to watch and consume. But it's for all of us to come together and join with them, joining our voices in declaring the glory of God to one another and to our own hearts. That is the beauty of worship and doing it through songs and hymns. We minister to one another through discipleship, encouragement, accountability. And especially reminding one another about how much God loves us. You are dearly loved by the creator of the universe. Because we forget that so quickly at times. We're so much loved by him that in his wisdom he chose us to bring us together. God has his plan and our good, not our desires, not our wants, not our preferences, but our good for sanctification and becoming like Jesus 
in mind when he brings us together. Let's participate in that because it's a wondrous purpose. He calls us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. How often we think about this passage when we consider about being the church. Uh, being the church is more than just coming and reading this and worshiping together. But in verse 10, finally be strengthened by the Lord in His vast strength. Put on the full army of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And it's especially not against brothers and sisters as God has brought us together but rather against the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. You see, Satan's plan has been to cause or desire for there to be division, to be disagreements over small little things. And so we keep each other at a distance. We don't step in. We don't engage. We don't be the church. We don't encourage one another. And, and what has happened is it's caused us to pursue church almost as this individual aspect. I come and I sing, but it's just me and Jesus. Well, it is you and Jesus, but it's more than that because your voice is declaring the goodness of God to one another in the same room. You are not isolated. being isolated, how possible is it even then to struggle against authorities, cosmic powers, evil, spiritual forces in the heavens? God's wisdom and His plan was for the church to do this, bound together in the peace of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So for this reason, take up the full armor of God, which is those unifying aspects of our brother and sisterhood. The, the helmet of salvation. We are all saved through the blood of Christ. The belt of truth. like It's truth that binds us all together. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God that we're supposed to encourage one another in. The shield of faith. Righteousness. These are all the things that unify us. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything, take your stand. And so the question for us today is, do you see church this way? Do you see it as something that you're called to be? Dressed in the armor of God, ready for battle, to be able to stand in the evil day. To be able to stand when, when things shake this world around us. To be able to minister to one another. Or is church just a part of your life on Sunday? Something that you come to consume to kind of get you through the week. It's helpful for that, but there's so much more. And it was bought by the blood of Christ. Over the next weeks, uh, we're going to be taking uh, a look at what it means to be the church. And, and as we do so, really what God is calling us to be as, as a church here specifically at Mercy Hill in Rock County. Uh, we're going to look at doing some more prayer nights uh, just besides uh, the Spirit-led that we have. Seeking God for what is He calling us to do. This last year uh, with coronavirus has caused uh, various things. We, we don't have a children's ministry right now. 
And so what I want to do as a church is let's come together and pray, God, what do you want children's ministry to look like? Are you calling us to have one right now? All right, well then let's do it, but let's do it together instead of just two people making it happen. Are, Are we supposed to reach out to our community through evangelism, through different events, I want as a church for us to come together and to pray and seek the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we would all feel joined by the unity saying, this is what God's calling us to be is mercy heal here in Janesville. So let's do this together as a church and not just a handful of people. And so I want to invite you to join us as we begin praying for what God has for us in 2021 and as a church here in Janesville. Like I said, we're going to have some other prayer nights. We're going to have some worship nights, uh, bringing these things together. Some of them may be here. Uh, We may have some in homes. But it's a pursuit of this wondrous calling that God has given to us. The church is not just something that we come and consume and then go on with our life, but rather being the church is our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, uh, and I pray that your Holy Spirit helps us to grasp this monumental truth that it is better that Jesus no longer walks on this earth Because your plan was for the Holy Spirit to have us here in 2020 in Janesville. Lord, let us live our lives with that in mind. Not looking to just see church as something to consume and to be a booster shot for our life, but rather being the church is the life that you died for us to have. We pray that you would guide us, Lord, as your church. We desire to know you more and to know your love more. And we desire to declare to this community, come see the beauty of our risen Lord. The way that we would want to share a sunrise with our loved ones. Let our lives be transformed by your Holy Spirit. And we want to follow you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.